You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Today we're going to continue in First Kings, Solomon's House of Prayer. And so I want to start off by reading this to you from First Kings chapter 8, verse 59 to 61. First Kings 8, 59 to 61. Solomon says this. May my words with which I have made my petition before the Lord be near the Lord our God day and night. May he uphold his servant's cause and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. Now get this. May all the peoples of the earth know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Be wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as it is today. May all the peoples of the earth know that the Lord is God and there is no other. So right from the beginning, I'm going to share the take-home truth to you because, with you because this is the filter from which we're going to look at this passage this morning. This is your take-home truth. The people of the church are the living temple of the Holy Spirit, meant to be a living house of prayer for all nations. The people of the church are the living temple of the Holy Spirit, meant to be a living house of prayer for all nations. This truth is the truth through which we filter this passage because it points us to how the passage fits into the bigger picture. Because sometimes we approach Old Testament narrative or stories or things like this, which when I read about the... uh, the temple, and I can't understand it. It, I kind of just gloss over it, and I don't spend the time digging deeper into what this must mean. But I'm convinced if we ask this one question throughout all of the Bible, no matter what we are reading, then it would just bring the passage alive to us in a new way. If we just ask, how does this passage, how does what I am reading fit into the whole story of God throughout time and all of Scripture? Because as we look at Scripture, the whole of the Bible is the story of God redeeming for himself a people. And so when we ask that question, we see in this passage, it not only shows us who God has been throughout history as he deals with his people, but it shows us that God has not changed. I mean, the Bible says that itself. God is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. God has not changed. The plan of God has not changed. His plan has always been to redeem himself, a people, through Jesus Christ. It wasn't like God with the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were up in heaven and like, hey, Adam sinned. What are we going to do now? Jesus, you got to go to the cross. No, that is not what Scripture teaches. Plan A has always been plan A, that Jesus, through his blood on the cross, a people would be bought back into rightness with God, redeemed for the sake of God himself. That's always been his plan. So last week we heard about the wisdom that Solomon asked for and received from God. We also saw his downfall and his greed that led to more greed and more greed and more greed. But we saw some examples of how that wisdom played out in a practical way. In the building of the temple, 
that we look at today is this uh, an amazing feat that was an outflowing physically of the wisdom that God gave to Solomon. So we see in chapter 6, it walks us through the building of this temple, as you saw depicted in this video. But I want you to look at this equation. Okay? There it is. That's the temple. You got it? Memorize it? Good. I'm just kidding. I don't get it either. Seriously, after the first, this first sermon, first uh, message at 8.30, someone came up to me and they were like, I mean, I still don't get the equation. It's a joke. I don't get it either. Chris Eller spent like 48 hours trying to figure that out. He did a good job. Anyway, the temple was built 418 years after Israel came out of Egypt. That's what 1 Kings tells us. In 2 Chronicles, kind of the parallel passage to this, it tells us it was the second day of the second month of the fourth year of Solomon's reign, which means he did not wait long after he became king to start fulfilling the promise that God made to his father David for him David's son, Solomon, to build a physical temple. Because David had wanted to build that temple. He had it in his heart to build the temple. But God said, it is a good thing that you have this in your heart to build the temple, but you won't be the one to do it. Your son, Solomon, will. And so it, it must have taken him a long time to gather the people and to gather the materials for building the temple that he started to build after having gotten ready for it four years after he became king. And then in chapter, well, in Exodus 25, we see that there was the tabernacle that was a temporary, movable place for the dwelling of God with his people on earth. And then Moses, I mean, and then Solomon is building this more permanent structure for the presence of God, for God himself in all of his glory to dwell among his people in the city of David the king, right? And then in chapter 7, he spends 13 years building his own palace. So I find it interesting. He spent seven years building the house of God. He spent 13 years building his own house. It's just interesting, but I don't think it, it means anything really except for just that his house had to be a lot bigger because it was him, it was all of his wives, what do you have, 700 wives, 700 concubines, and all of his servants and all of the royalty. It took him 13 years to build his own palace. And then in chapter 8, we see Solomon's prayer in and dedication of the temple as all of Israel is gathered for a festival. In verse 4 and 6, we see that the Ark of the Covenant that had in it the two stone tablets that God wrote the Ten Commandments on and gave to Moses on the mountain, right? Gave him that, and it had on it the law of the covenant. This was the Ark of the Covenant that had the law in it, saying, reminding the people all the time, this is the covenant that I have with you. If you obey me, and if you follow my command, I will be your God and you will be my people. But if you disobey, there will be consequences. God turns his back. He, he pulls back his restraining grace. They get conquered. They're, they get sent into exile. There's consequences for God's people turning away from him. And the Ark of the Covenant is, is a reminder of that covenant, and it has the law in it. And all of the holy utensils, that were in the tabernacle along with the Ark of the Covenant are now brought into this more permanent house of God 
to dwell among his people. And then in verse 5, you see they sacrificed more sheep and goats than could be counted. In verse 14 to 21, we read that they built the temple in fulfillment of the promise of God to David, who is Solomon's father. 23 to 26, we see that Solomon's prayer is based on the promise of God, and he is claiming that promise through prayer and obedience. Through prayer and obedience. 27 to 30, he says, will God actually dwell with men? And then he goes into this humble petition that God would hear his prayers offered toward this place. And then we look at his prayer, and there's three components that you're going to hear throughout the morning, but there's three components in Solomon's prayer in that temple that I think are also echoed in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus is with his disciples, and the disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, teach us how to pray. And I think these things are present there as well. But one, the first thing is worship. The second thing is humility. And the third thing is petition. Verse 23, he worships God. He says, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below who keeps the gracious covenant with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept what you promised your servant, my father David. You spoke directly to him and you fulfilled your promise by your power as it is today. And then he goes into this humble place. But let me tell you this. As we pray and as we are in the presence of God, as we worship, the only right outcome, the only right production of that in us is humility. There is no way that you can worship God for who he really is and come out of that with pride still intact. The best way to fight the pride that is in your heart is to worship God. Because as soon as we start to see this is who God is in, in relation to who I am, I mean, I know the thoughts and the things that I have said in my own heart even today, and it's church day, right? That's humbling to me when I come and I start to worship God because I'm like, yeah, man. Is God really going to dwell with me? So when I start to worship, my only posture of response has to be humility. Because in verse 27, he says this, But will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you. Much less this temple that I have built. Worship leads him to be humble. And then the only place from which we should be making petition to God is in humility based on who he is to who we are. And then we realize, in humility, I can ask of God. Because if I come to God with pride and think that he owes me anything, I say, God, come on. Why'd you let that happen? You, come on, you said this. You owe me this. We come with that, with that attitude. Don't ever think that God owes you anything. And that he has to answer that prayer in any way. But when we worship God and we are humbled by that and we come to him and we make our petition, then God answers prayers. 
and verse 28 to the end are these detailed if-then petitions from Solomon to God, saying, God, I know what the covenant is, that if we follow you and obey your commands, then you will dwell with us. But he goes into these detailed statements that say, if we sin in this way, you can read about it, if we sin in this way, right, we understand there's punishment coming, but if we turn back to you, if we turn our hearts back to you, please forgive us and turn back to us, right? This is echoed in Leviticus 26 in the law, and so he's basing it in truth, in what is expected of the people of God for obedience. It's also echoed in the book of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah looks at the walls of Jerusalem and he says, he's, he's heartbroken for his people. They, are, they have disobeyed and they are in exile in Babylon. And he's saying, the, the walls of Jerusalem are burnt down. Our people are a, a reproach to the name of God. Like, God... I understand, I know we have sinned against you in these ways. We have turned our backs on you. But God, you said, and he does it in humility, you said, if we turned our hearts back to you, you would forgive us and dwell with us again. And so that's Nehemiah's prayer, and it's echoed here in 1 Kings. So what was Solomon's house of prayer? What do we mean by Solomon's house of prayer? What was it for? What was it a shadow of? Was it just a building? How does it fit into the bigger picture? Because remember, you've got to connect where we are now in 1 Kings to the take-home truth. The people of the church are the living temple of the Holy Spirit, meant to be a living house of prayer for all, all nations. So Solomon's house of prayer was a place for the glory of and the holiness of and the presence of God to what? Dwell on earth with his people. So I want to pick this apart for you a little bit. This is one of those passages where when Todd gave it to me, I was like, thanks a lot, dude. This is like six full pages in my Bible. I don't know how I'm going to do this. And so I just spent a lot of time digging into it. And I can tell you this. When you come across a hard passage where it doesn't seem to have a whole lot of <clears throat> meat to it, you take, the, you take the time to do the hard work to dig into I was just telling somebody between services that the best thing I learned at Bible school was how to study the Bible for myself. Because if you do the hard work to dig into what God is trying to say in any passage of the Bible and how it fits into the bigger story, you will be amazed. And so I even sat in my office sometimes when I was looking through this and what I'm about to tell you, and I started getting giddy. Like I was like kind of like laughing a little bit in my office because I was so excited about what God was showing me in this passage. So do the work to dig in. So here we go in 1 Kings chapter 6. Right away when it says, hold on, I'm flipping back 10 pages in my Bible. When it says, Solomon began to build the temple for the Lord in the 418th year. The word in Hebrew that is used for the temple, the physical dwelling of God, is bayit, or bayit, however you want to say that. It literally means house of the Lord, house of God, 
or dwelling for God. And then you look forward into Hebrews 8.5. It says this. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. These serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, Be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. Are you starting to get a picture of where I'm going with this? Let's keep going. Let's keep unpacking. Where did God dwell in this temple? Chapter 8, 1 Kings, verse 10 and 11 says this. When the priest came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the Lord's temple, and because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering, for the Lord, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Can you see this in your mind? The very presence of the glory of God had come down to dwell with people which is an amazing thing in the first place. Will God actually dwell with men? But the glory of God comes down and in a cloud fills the temple such that the priests are no longer to minister in there. The glory of God has filled the temple. Matthew 27, 50 through 51. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Says this, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. So, in the temple, there was the holy place and then there was the holy of holies. And there was this curtain that separated where the presence of God actually dwelt in the holy of holies. This curtain separated out where people could go and where the priests would go into the Holy of Holies to meet with God on behalf of the people on a yearly basis. This curtain, let me describe it for you, 60 feet long, that's laid down, so if it's stand up, I'm almost 6 foot. That's 10 times me. 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide and the thickness of a person's palm. Okay? That's not getting anything. Have you ever seen a piece of paper as thick as your palm? I've seen a blanket as thick as my palm. I started trying to think of what could all the objections here be like. My, the down comforter on my bed, right? It's like that thick, but I can go boom and flatten it, right? I could probably maybe tear it. There's blankets at my house that I couldn't tear. This thing was as thick all the way through and through that you could not flatten it as thick as your palm. And it was so heavy that it took 300 men to set it in its place. To separate the holy of holies from the rest of the temple. The place where God would dwell. So it was a serious thing. That yes, God was dwelling in his house with his people, but there were still rules that applied. This curtain separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And yet, 
with no instruments, with no tools, the power of God tears that thing like it was a piece of paper because of Jesus' death on the cross. The power of God tears it from top to bottom, opening the presence of God and releasing it so that sinners now have access to God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So now because of Jesus, we as ordinary people, sinners, have access to God. And now, instead of the dwelling place of God inside the temple being separated by a curtain, that curtain has been torn and the dwelling place for God is now among and in his people wherever they are gathered. So now we've got to connect the two. In Mark 11, there's this scene and the people, the merchants, are in the temple courts and they're buying and selling things in an improper way. But here's what you need to understand. This court where they were gathered was called the court of the Gentiles. Okay? What the court of the Gentiles was, was it was part of the plan of God in creating the temple, was a place that Gentiles, non-Jews, okay, the temple was a thing built by Jews, but it was a place where non-Jews could come in and observe what was going on inside the temple in such a way that it would have been understood what was supposed to happen in the temple, right? So they could show up, observe everything, and say, yeah, I got a good picture of who this God is, right? Jesus walks on the scene, and these merchants are buying and selling things in an improper way, such that if a Gentile walked into the court of the Gentiles and looked at what was going on, they would have gotten a very incorrect view of who God was, right? And so Jesus, we read about how he's gentle and kind and loving, right? Dude takes and builds a whip, he walks in there with some righteous anger, right? The only anger that, the, that, that Scripture allows us says, be angry and do not sin. Well, this was Jesus. Why? Because he was angry for, he was zealous for the name of God. And so he walks into this place and he drives out these merchants and he says this, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Why did he say that? Because he wanted the people standing in the court of the Gentiles to be able to look in and say, wow, this is a house of prayer. Because that is an accurate view of God's dwelling with his people. And then he says, but you have made it a den of thieves. When Jesus says, my house, he says it once, will be called a House, he says it twice, of prayer, he uses this word, okay? Oikos, like the Greek yogurt. Anybody like oikos? I have no idea why they named a yogurt after the word house in Greek, except for the fact that it should be in your house, right? So they should pay me for that advertisement. Anyway, the word oikos means house, Rewind about 15 minutes in this message to where we saw the Hebrew word for house, the physical temple, was bayit. Oikos and bayit, 
Hebrew, Greek equivalents to each other, meaning the same exact thing, the dwelling place of God on earth. We are still talking, though, about a physical temple as the dwelling place for God. Go forward in Scripture to 1 Peter 2, 1 through 5, and I'm going to read this to you because this is important. It says this, 1 Peter 2, 1 through 5. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, so that you may grow up into your salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. You yourselves, as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built up into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He begins now to take what are the physical building blocks of a physical temple, which are what? Stones, right? Bait, oikos, a physical house with physical stones being built up, right? And then he says of Jesus that he is a living stone. So he crosses that bridge from physical stone to a living, a spiritual stone. And then he says this, you are living stones, okay? A spiritual, what do you think the Greek word there is? Oikos. A spiritual house. He is no longer talking about the fact that God's dwelling place on earth is within the four walls of the temple, confined by a building. No. He's saying now, because of what we looked at, the curtain being torn into and the presence of God, the dwelling of God being released from the Holy of Holies to be in and among his people, a spiritual house. God is no longer confined and his presence is no longer confined to this room, the worship center at First Family Church. Because guess what? This stage, these walls, those chairs, it's all going to burn. God's dwelling place. Side in the court of the Gentiles are able to look at the dwelling place of God and understand a little bit about who God is. And how does Jesus define that? He says, it shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So you get that? The people of the church are the living temple of the Holy Spirit, meant to be a living house of prayer 
for all nations. So what should characterize us, what people on the outside in the court of the Gentiles should see is that these people, not that you're great evangelists, not that you have great preachers, not that you have great music, not that you have comfortable chairs or a good kids program. No, they should be able to look at the church and say these are people madly in love with their God and they commune with God on a regular basis because their heart is for God alone in prayer. And when they look at that, it's so that, what I read at the beginning, all the people of the earth would know that he is the Lord and there is no other. And so that's really how I want to end here. And the band is going to come back up and they're going to play some music, but we're going to spend some time in prayer. So in these moments, I want you just to bow your head and close your eyes. And we don't tell you to bow your head and close your eyes in church because that's a ritual or something that you have to do, right? It's because I know when my eyes are open and I'm looking around, I'm distracted. And so we just want you to, in the presence of God, be undistracted and be able to commune with him because... And know this, that even as you leave this place, his presence and his dwelling on earth does not stay in this room. It goes with you. And so we're going to pray those three aspects of the prayer that Solomon prayed. So I want you just in these moments, whether it's with the person who you came with or if it's by yourself, you can pray just above a whisper. And I want us just to start off by worshiping God. And as the music plays, proclaim who God is and worship Him without any distractions. If you have to turn your phones off or put them on silent or whatever, but close your eyes, bow your heads, and just commune with God and tell Him who He is. Proclaim worship to our God because there is no other. So go ahead and just spend some time doing that. as you have been worshiping and proclaiming to God who he is 
Now my prayer has been that it would drive us to humility. And so the next few moments, I just want us to spend some time asking God to keep us humble, to understand that he is the one that saves, that he is the one that gives life and breath to our lungs, that he is the sustainer, that our surrender is not just a surrender to a better life, but our surrender is a surrender to the God who loves us and made us for his glory. And in that, I just want to call you to any pride that is left in you, that is keeping you from fully, from full obedience to God, repent of that pride. Just tell God, man, I've been prideful. I want to turn from that. Forgive me and help me. Just spend time just before God in humility. And now we're going to pray one more thing, and this is our petition to God. And this is, this is the part that if you came with somebody or if you're here with your spouse or whoever you came with or if you're comfortable with it and there's people around you, gather with them and pray right above a whisper so you can hear each other. And if you're here by yourself or you're new, um, this isn't meant to be awkward. You can just hang out by yourself, do what you feel led to do. But here's the prayer that the people of First Family Church, Ankeny, Bondurant, Life Change Church, the Fairgrounds, City Point in Urbandale, and all the gospel-preaching churches in Des Moines and Iowa, and then go out from there to our country and to the world, that our heart is for the nations, and your prayer is a petition to God that we would be a people constantly reminded by His Holy Spirit to be communing with Him, to be praying people such that when the world outside looks at the way that we love God and the way that we commune with God and the way that we pray for them even, that they are driven to know that there is no other God like the God that they worship. And so that's your prayer in these moments. So gather with the people around you. It's okay if you stay by yourself, but I want you just to pray with the people around you right above a whisper, and I'll pray in a few moments, and then we'll continue to worship together and proclaim to God in worship. So go ahead and and begin praying in that way.
God, you are holy, you are righteous, and you are just. There is no one like you in heaven or on earth. You are patient with us, you are gracious. Thank you for Jesus. We're humbled by the fact that a holy God would desire to be with his people, would desire a relationship with us, and would desire to use us for your glory. I pray for First Family Church and for City Point and Life Change and First Family Bondurant and God, for the church in Des Moines and Iowa and the nation. I pray for our leaders, God, that the church in America would be praying for their leaders. And I pray that because of the name of Jesus, that the church being the dwelling place of God on earth, God, just continue to save people by the blood of Jesus Christ, your son. We are humble now in your presence, God, and we want to continue just to worship you and lift your name up. Continue to remind us that you are God and we are not. And there is freedom in that. We love you and we need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons. Thanks for listening.